So, is music journalism still relevant, or is it just creating clickbait? In 2017, we discussed the slow death of music criticism. Today, we revisit this topic in relation to music journalism as a whole. Are journalists mainly charged with getting clicks for a band these days, or do they serve a deeper role? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about the state of music journalism and where we go from here. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Zoe Elaine. Zoe, welcome to the future of what. Hi, thanks for having me. So today we're talking about music journalism. You guessed it. Woohoo! We did an episode a couple of years ago, actually, on the topic of music criticism. So I kind of wanted to start off with that, just as a random question to use. Music journalism used to be more about music criticism. Do you feel like it's changed a little bit? Yes. And I would say that I personally don't like the idea of calling it criticism. I don't criticize necessarily in what I write, especially what I try to do and what I know a lot of my peers are doing. It's more of exploring artists, the stories behind the albums and stuff, not so much like rating the art itself. I think it's just more about origin and intention, which again, like that's kind of why I got into this whole game to begin with, because it mattered to me on that level. I don't like the idea of criticizing. I don't like the idea of writing a bad review. Oh, interesting. So for you, it's more like music journalism is more like publicity. Like it's it's actually telling the story of an artist. Yeah. Rather than like saying, oh, this artist stacks up next to these artists in this way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, context is always important. Right. <laughs> I'm definitely very... I don't want to say guilty, but I definitely ask too many questions about like peers. And I think that some artists don't appreciate that. But that's, I think, just because everyone thinks they exist kind of in a bubble, but that's not true. And I always like to explore that. But there's no need to be mean. That's always my like motto. Right. Bad press is always like, what is the phrase? Oh my God, I can't think of it now. All publicity is good publicity. Yes. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's funny because I'm old enough to remember when I would read reviews of albums, like album reviews. And it was also because, you know, technology was completely different. You couldn't necessarily hear an album before you bought it. You had to buy it if you wanted to hear it, if it wasn't on the radio. So, you know, that pretty much makes like, we're talking about pretty much every independent album except, you know, the stuff that was on independent radio, college radio. So, you know, you'd have to read a review to find out if you liked it. And and I think, you know, certain people got very famous mm-hmm. in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, you know, for writing reviews. And they'd want to know what John Perez in the New York Times had to say about, you know, such and such a band or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then something interesting happened when the internet started getting going. I feel like we also had criticism sites that popped up like Pitchfork, where You would read album reviews on Pitchfork, but it almost wouldn't matter who wrote the review. It was more like just it was on the site. (laughs) So 
And then it became a weird numbers game where it's like, oh, well, that only got a 7.2 on Pitchfork. So right. I don't think I need to waste my time with that. But then everything changed again. You know, I mean, so this is just a crazy, you know, the music business is crazy because it just it changes and changes. Oh, my God. But where are we now? Like, that's what I want to ask you. Like, what what are journalists up to now? Yeah, well, definitely not wrong. It's definitely changing again. It's funny. We're doing this interview just a few days after I found out that the 405 is closing, mm, mm-hmm. who I write for. Oh, my God. And I had no idea. And so I definitely this news is some of the most heartbreaking for me. Not like there's always going to be opportunities for me to write. And I'm not like lamenting that. I have my own like personal blog that, you know, I don't have advertisers. I don't do any of that stuff, but I still put up content. Like I still write about stuff and whether people read it or not. So the writing aspect is not necessarily the bad thing. It's like me thinking in the scheme of things, blogs are dropping like flies because of that reason. Like nobody reads it or if they read it, it's only for the score or the number. And it almost doesn't even seem to matter. (laughs) Like I feel very defeated by it. Right. But because I've always had that drive to share the stories and really connect with the artists themselves and talk about intention and all of that, I think that that's what keeps me going, (laughs) especially, like I said, with my blog, which doesn't have any, like it doesn't get traffic. (laughs) Like nobody goes to my blog. But, you know, with the 405 closing, I'm not really sure if I'd be able to publish on the other publications that I have connections with. And so, yeah, maybe it's all going to be an echo chamber soon, but I'm still going to try and do what I love. And I think it's kind of all that matters too between, obviously there's so many sides. So like you've got the publicists, the writers and the artists. And then of course there's all the studio people. But for my side of it, I feel like making these connections with the artists directly is like some of the most important stuff. Mm, that's a good way to put it. Well, Zoe Elaine, thanks for being with us today on The Future of What? I really appreciated it. Thank you.
to read the words Submit to private spells Careless as birds On updrafts over hell It's all a game till someone's making money. Then it's a game show. I let my mind go. I go. That was God's Guts by Eamon Fogarty. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Ian Imhoff. Ian, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so today we are talking about music journalism. And I want to just ask you a question, just put you on the spot right away. Sure. How would you describe the current state in, you know, July 2019 of music journalism in this country? Go. It's not great. <laughs> explain, you know, explain. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it also, you know, it really does depend on what you're looking for and, and what's going on. You know, I have my own theories coming from both a management and a PR background, kind of where things were and where they are now and where they're going and why they've become that way. There's a lot of problems with the clickbaitiness of things, you know, trying to get headlines for clicks because, you know, that's just how you make money these days. Right. If you're not bringing in subscriptions, if you're not bringing in, you know, actual things like that. So it's unfortunate because it, it has taken something that, you know, I, growing up, I loved reading magazines. I loved even the early blogosphere kind of stuff, you know, finding music that way. But 
my big theory about why music journalism is kind of broken down to the situation it is right now is that with the advent of streaming services and before that, you know, illegal file sharing things, editorial has kind of gone by the wayside. You don't need a writer to tell you, hey, this is good. You should go check it out. And that's a writer that you've developed, you know, over months, years of your life, a connection with trusting their information, trusting their ear to what you like. So with that kind of breakdown, you know, I feel like when you can just tell your friend, hey, go check this out, you don't need to listen to somebody you don't know talk about it anymore. So it's kind of an unfortunate thing where it's it's twofold. It's that it's money going away from from ad revenue and people finding stuff on the internet for free and, and not having to pay for magazines or newspapers or you know, even zines or anything like that anymore. So that's kind of my big picture in a <laughs> in a pitch. I think that that is very correct. And I'm interested in the arc of that, which I definitely want to talk to you about. But I also think What's interesting to me is that the direction we're going, like it's less and less and less, right? That's what we've seen. It's, it's you know, there are fewer blogs and there are fewer online magazines and there are, you know, things are compressing. There are fewer amounts of words that people have when they do write a piece. But then the really funny thing is if we talk about like what's next, what's coming next, you know, what's on the rise right now is podcasts. Sure. And the funny thing about podcasts is like podcasts are basically a long form format. Right, right. (laughs) To which people give a lot of, you know, you must necessarily give a lot of your attention to it because it's not like a three minute song where you can just listen to a three minute song or whatever. You know, it's actually most, most podcasts are like over 20 minutes. So you're giving some attention to it. Right. So I just, I find that sort of an interesting irony of where we're at, but that's besides the point. <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to talk about that. Unless you have something you want to add. No, I mean I think you're correct on that. Podcast has been a really interesting thing. I'm I'm kind of late to the game personally to podcasts. And I think that has to do with just the way that I personally work. I work from home. I don't commute. I think a lot of people that I know personally here living in LA listen to podcasts in the car. And I'm one of those people that I can't listen to podcasts while I work. I can't. I know some people out there can, and that's, I sometimes wish I could. But if somebody's in the room talking and I'm trying to work, I can't, I can't do it. So, you know, it's one of those things where I think if you have the ability to have the attention span for it, people ingest it easier, I think, than writing and reading. I don't think it's a laziness thing or anything. It's just it's just a matter of fact. It's something that you can take in just like music. It's easier to listen to something than it is to to sit down and try and read a long form piece. Absolutely. But of course, you know, what we're talking about here is music journalism. So we're talking about like the art of writing. Yes. You know, I definitely want to talk about that because like I alluded to before the sort of the arc of how this has gone. You know, I feel like when I was growing up in the early 80s, mid 80s, there were these journalists who were critics, you know, they were rock critics, and people would, as you mentioned, turn to them to find out what they thought of a new record. And in the process of talking about what they thought about a new record, they tended to give you history of that band's place in the greater ecosystem of music. And I think that's the part that I worry about us losing. Sure. If, as you're saying, things are moving towards clickbait where you just want the quick click, you just want someone to like, oh, this person has, you know, no top on, like click (laughs) or whatever. It implies that people aren't as interested in learning more about, you know, the history of rock or this band's place in this or what they really sound like or, you know, what their influences were or whatever. 
And, you know, I don't necessarily think that people don't want that, but I think you're right that the marketplace has changed so much that that's like almost not an option. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's more of a marketplace change. I don't think that there is, obviously there's less demand than there used to be, but I think that's just kind of based on trends that the marketplace have set. You know, I, coming up in the, you know, as I did coming up in the mid nineties and early aughts, you know, I didn't read as much magazine coverage, I, I'm sure as, you know, people from the eighties, but I did get a lot of stuff out of radio, mm. you know, I'm from the Seattle area. So I was a big alt kid. So we had one Oh seven, seven and, you know, a lot of those DJs got deeper into things than if I just found it on my own. Right. And so I think that's kind of maybe the, the gap between the magazine and the, just finding something on, on Spotify it was a kind of a radio DJ or, or, you know, a, some type of a writer who is able to capture it in a shorter piece there. You know, I think maybe that's where podcasts come in. There's a lot of great podcasts out there that talk about the history of music, history of records, have artists go and break down their records for, you know, and, and people find a lot of information in there. But yeah, I think it's just a marketplace change. I think it's, People can find the information on their own and they don't necessarily have to find it through a writer anymore or a magazine. You can go to the website of the band and find their bio. You can go to Wikipedia if they have one. You can ask your friends who maybe been in the scene and sent you the link on Spotify. So yeah, I, I think there's just a lot more ways to ingest or find the information and ingest it. But you know, it's just much more readily available. So I think that's kind of where that change has, has happened, which is great. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the free flow of information and, and access for as many people want to get it. But it does change that traditional thought of, hey, we're going to cover this and we're really going to you know, give you the full information because now you don't necessarily get the click for here's the history of this record or here's the history of this band. One thing included with that that I noticed this morning, actually, I, I clicked on some song premiere or some song post on one of the websites. And usually the first couple of paragraphs are talking about the song and, you know, what's kind of going on with the band. And then you'll have the song and then there'll be like a slight history of the band, even if it's just a paragraph of like, you know, who this band is. I've noticed that some places they don't even have that anymore. So it's like if you don't know who this band is, you're going to not have any information outside of here's this song. So that's a really interesting thing I just started to notice. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, another statistic I want to bring up, this is probably out of date because this is, I heard this a couple of years ago and it may be different. Although when I was at Indie Week in New York, which is the independent label conference in June, I heard the statistic again. So I'm not sure, you know, I don't think it's necessarily changed that much, but I, sure. but the statistic is that 90% of the music that's on Spotify is never listened to and that it's 10% of the music gets all the plays. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I'm interested because, you know, this is what people have been talking about throughout history, you know, the tyranny of the masses, right? Like, sure. like people are going to listen to really what's popular. Like, you know, if you don't know what you like, if you don't know what to listen to, and you have Spotify in front of you, which has everything, you know, that's why playlisting is so popular because people yeah. want to just listen, you know, they in, on some level want to be told what to listen to, right? And I'm not saying that in a bad way. That's not a bad thing. No, not at all. That's a crazy statistic that I've never heard, but I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it it is interesting because even somebody like me who considers himself a fairly diverse, musically tasted person, you know, I, I like everything from jazz and rock to hip hop and old school new stuff. You know, I was listening to a Broadway musical walking around the other day. 
But I find myself personally getting in those traps because I will, unlike maybe if I had my my CD collection in my car when I was a kid or, or you know, my vinyl collection at home, if I'm not looking, actively looking through tangible product, I find myself listening to the same stuff over and over again, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. So I, I think that's definitely just based on my own habits and somebody who is in the industry and has been in the industry for a while and listens to a lot of music, that statistic doesn't surprise me at all. But yeah, like you said, playlisting is very popular and important for that now because not only people want the playlists, they want to know what the new music is. They want to be told what to listen to, like you said, and not in a bad way or a good way, just a way. It also creates the gatekeeper mentality of these DSPs. Right. You know, these it is these editors and these editors are the new John Paralysis of the world. They are the new people who are going to change your opinion on a song, whether it's in this list or not. Not necessarily giving you any background information, but you know, if they send you 25 brand new songs that came out this week, you're probably going to like three of them. And of those three, you know, they're going to pop and they'll be in the charts. And it might be a legacy act. It might be a brand new band. It might be some SoundCloud rapper that nobody's ever heard of, but it, it does come down to the editors. So, so yeah, that's that's always something. And this, I, I think the editor thing is something a lot of people don't think of. As somebody who talks to bands all the time, oh, why aren't we getting playlisted? Why aren't we getting put in these things? I go, look, it's not. It doesn't matter how many follows you have. It doesn't matter, you know, how good your song might be sonically. It's really down to does this editor like it? Just like in press. Going back to the press piece, I can't guarantee my artist press just because it's a good song or we think it's a good, good song. You know, it has to connect with the the editor or the writer and, and then it turns into a piece. It kind of all ties back like that. Yeah. And I can't decide. I mean, you know, the analytical part of me really wants to say whether that's good or bad. Sure. And I can't really decide if that's good or bad because on, on some level, it's like purely democratic, right? If it's just put up on a playlist with no why, right? Like no explanation. Then you get to just decide. You can say, I like it or I don't like it, you know? Right. But I guess maybe it's just my age and what I'm used to, but I love the idea of context, right? I love the idea of being told, sure, I think this is a great song and here's why, you know? And and maybe that's because I'm used to reading rock criticism or sure. I'm not sure. It's, or it's like, I feel like everything is like that. I mean, I, I feel like film criticism, you know, it's like people are going to write about a film and they're going to tell you why they like it, not just that it exists. You know, it's like, that's the difference between publicity and criticism, right? Is it's like, you're just telling somebody something exists. Exactly. And I think that's also, that's also kind of where I've made this distinction between film and music, because people have always said, well, you know, film critics are still around things like that. I said, well, yeah, film critics are around because you still have to pay money to go see a film, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to see a brand new film, Regardless of your situation, you're going to have to pay money, even if it's a one of the instant download things that I think, you know, some places like Apple do now where you can maybe in a week you can download it for 20 bucks. You're still paying money. So you're still making a personal investment of time and money into a thing to go and do as opposed to that's how music used to be with music criticism. That's why you had rock critics and, and they would break it down critically for you and say, you know, this is why this album is the best album of the year. This is why this album isn't great. This is why you should go and spend your $10, $15, $20. Go out, physically buy a tangible asset, bring it back, put it in your, you know, time, money. Why the criticism has gone away and in my mind is because we do have 
instant access, you know, tying it back to what I said in the beginning. I think you'd probably start to see a film criticism, television criticism, things like that start to slowly deteriorate if it was just available. If you paid, you know, $20 a month to get all the brand new releases when they come out. So I think it's interesting to draw that line and try and figure out what the differences are and <laughs> why we are in the situation we're in now. Right, which I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, we don't always get really philosophical on this program, but I think it's great when we do because, you know, people talk about music being devalued and really, and who cares? And uh, I think a great point is, well, look at all the other industries that are affected now that we, you know, suddenly decided that music should be free and then, oh, okay, fine. Well, you can have every piece of music ever created for $9.99 a month, you know? Right. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, is a completely impossible value proposition, right? Like, none of that music can be worth very much if you're paying $9.99 a month to access it. Exactly. So it's had repercussions across all industries because now, you know, we're looking at this problem in music journalism. Maybe it's not a problem, but the current state of music journalism, you know, where, where people who once could make a living doing this are, are really having a hard time. And a lot of people have left the business because there just aren't that many places to be music critics or journalists. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a couple of years ago when I was really, you know, in the midst of, I, I was at a PR company here in LA for about a year. And during that year of me being there, it was amazing. The amount of blogs, magazines, you know, print magazines, big time things, big time media companies that that delved into journalism, criticism of music and entertainment in general, shutting down. Fridays, there's an online group of publicists from around uh, around the country, and you know, we we would have Red Fridays where you'd just you'd log on at nine in the morning Pacific time and see like, all right, somebody's going to send around the cut list, like who's gone, who's you know, which blog folded this week, which you know, how many people did Rolling Stone lay off this week? Wow! And it was really crazy to see it, and I'm sure it's still happening. I'm not part of that group anymore. But I'm sure that there's still a considerable amount. Just the the writers that I, I follow a lot of different music writers and entertainment writers on Twitter because I feel like that's the only people that and trolls <laughs> that still use that still use Twitter. But yeah, I, I'm I'm always amazed at and, and some of these some of these writers who are just like some of the, the, the best writers that I know or have ever met, just being laid off. Just no, oh, no, you're good. Oh, well, I guess I'm back to freelance now or, you know, or even the freelancers, the great freelancers of the world having a problem finding places to freelance for who've done major things for whoever, you know, New York Times, LA Times, Spin, Rolling Stone, Vanity, anything like that. It's always fascinating to see, you know, how it's changing, how fast it's changing and if there's a if there's a way to save it, really. Right. And, you know, it's, it is funny, though, because there's two sides to this, which, you know, there's the journalism side, they're writing about the bands, but then there's the band side. And sure. what I find interesting, and, you know, maybe I'm fully out of touch, and I'm totally wrong, but I feel like if bands were really savvy, they would have taken advantage of this state of things to be more outrageous, because you're going to get way more clicks if you behave in an outrageous fashion. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, that's that's true. I think it's a maybe a twofold thing there with as much as I am a fan of 60s and 70s rock and late 70s, early 80s punk, the kind of things you used to be able to do <laughs> to get those salacious headlines are either boring now 
aren't actually salacious anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> or they're so out of line that you get actually get arrested for that now. Right. There's no slap on the wrist anymore. There's no, we live in a, in, in a police state. You can't get away with things anymore. And for better or for worse, I think that really makes people think twice, especially I think rock stars or, you know, whatever people in bands. I have conversations with my bands who, you know, smoke weed. I say, hey, all right, you're doing the West Coast? Great. Yeah. You're going through Texas? You're dumping that before you hit Arizona. Right. Like straight up. Like you're not, because you used to be, oh, maybe, you know, maybe they got cop cars out there. They got planes watching you now, the whole thing. You just can't get away with it. So it, it is hard. I think it's harder to get stuff that way just, you know, on the salaciousness end. But I mean, that is something that I do see a lot of, you know, whether it's take, for instance, this whole Taylor Swift Scooter Braun thing that just happened. That was a big piece and it was salacious in a way, but it wasn't a rock star thing. It was a business thing. Right. But even something that big, and that's a big story. That's a big, big sequence of money transactions and masters and a lot of insider ball that I think a lot of people who aren't in the industry wouldn't understand. That's a lot of stuff. And it went away in a day and a half. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the speed of things. It's the speed of things. You just, you have to keep going. And and one of the things that I thought when you started talking about bands taking advantage or bands feeling away, one of the things that I've noticed, you know, in my last few years is that bands get their feelings hurt now. Mm, that's interesting. When they get a bad review. Oh. If you get a bad review, you get a bad write-up, you get a, you know, something like, you know, I used to work with a band called Idiot Pilot. And one of their first album reviews that they got after they had signed Warner Brothers was a Pitchfork article. And it tore them up. I can't remember the number, but it was very, very low. And the closing line of the piece was, in closing, this band sounds like a monkey with a hand grenade. <laughs> and so the band, being smart asses uh -oh. as they were at the time, printed merch that was a monkey with a hand grenade. <laughs> And it's sold, you know, and, it, and their fans didn't care. Yeah. But it was something that kept them, you know, they were like, oh, that's funny. Like, okay, cool. You know, I think one of the prime examples of this was Jeremy Larson's piece in Pitchfork last year or early this year, late last year, about Greta Van Fleet. It blew up. It blew up. It was a viral piece because he tore them up. Mm -hmm. He came out of retirement, <laughs> as he said, and he came in and he gave them an old fashioned Pitchfork review. I read it. It was a smart review. It was very well written, as he's a very good writer. But it wasn't the worst thing I ever read in Pitchfork. Man, I read some stuff back in the day that was really nasty. Yeah. And people freaked out. And they got so upset. And people were so hurt. And I go, you guys, it's one dude's opinion. And that's cool. Like, it's good that they got clicks for it, because that's probably you know, kept Pitchfork and black for another few months <laughs> but but you know it was like whatever it's a thing that i never i haven't seen until the last few years of people just really like in, in writers being worried to do bad pieces on people and editors being afraid to run bad pieces on people for that flack i don't know i personally i would just lean into it but that's why i do what i do and i'm not a writer <laughs> That's really interesting. And, you know, if we had more time, I'd, I'd love to go down that rabbit hole, too, because I think the juxtapositions of culture are what really interests me. And, you know, I mean, the Internet is basically a giant trolling machine. I mean, it's just yeah. an opportunity for people to just say terrible things about people they've never met. 
So I think that's really interesting that in the like legit realm of criticism, people can't take it at all. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the thing. And are afraid to do it. You know, as you said, like journalists and editors don't want to write those pieces. That's so fascinating because it's like everywhere else on the internet, you're just going to get your head handed to you by total strangers who probably don't even know anything about you or, you know, have, you know, are probably 12. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then it's, but it's also funny to follow these people on Twitter and see like, okay, I know you wrote that piece and it was like a normal piece because that's what your editor's looking for or that's what the owner of the company wants and they don't want to rock the boat too much. And so you write this piece, but then you just see them on Twitter, just boom, just like, sniping at people and you're like well see that's i would i would read that piece right. i would read the actual piece there but you know it is what it is it's all that sweet sweet late era capitalism yeah <laughs> uh, we're fiddling while rome burns it's awesome indeed <laughs> well on that note ian imhoff i could talk to you for hours thanks so much for being with me today on the future of what thanks so much for having me That was Last Chance County by Filthy Friends. 
You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Nate Sirota. Welcome to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. So today we're talking about music journalism, and if premieres are not as important, what is taking its place, or what what are music journalists actually doing with most of the time if premieres are less and less important? You know, really, it's become more important than the actual exclusivity, which used to be kind of like, we want that exclusive, that was the most important thing. Now it's really just, I think the most important thing is a compelling story. People want a compelling story to tell their readers something that people are going to click on. And I think that that's, like you mentioned, where the actual music criticism and storytelling comes into play as opposed to just kind of copying and pasting a press release. Right. So have you been coming across like a lot of good stories lately? Are people getting better? Because there's sort of like, that's a takes two to tango kind of thing, right? So it's like, you can have journalists who are poised to write really cool stories about a band. But if the band is not willing to put forward a cool story. I mean, that's a constant struggle with artists and labels and management. I mean, just because you're an artist releasing a song, that's not a compelling story, especially <laughs> in our saturated landscape. So right. there needs to be there needs to be a way to dig deeper. Every artist has a story. They may not think that they do, but they do. They, I'm certain that they do. So it really requires some digging deeper than just kind of the traditional we're we're a band and we're releasing an album and that's our story. Right. I always go back to this, you know, people who've listened to this show for five years are going to be so tired of hearing me say this, but I always go back to the White Stripes as my example of like a perfect marketing campaign on top of really excellent music. I mean, the music is amazing and mm-hmm. it could have stood by itself. But then the fact that they did like, you know, wearing only red and white and their, all of their press photos were really hand-in-hand hand with that, right? Like, they all were of a piece. And then, like, the weird relationship between Jack and Meg, like, were they married? Were they brother and sister? Like, that was, like, such a perfect storm, that band, I feel like, in terms of press-worthiness, because that was such an interesting story. People were just really interested in writing about it. And I always point to that because I'm like, I always like to tell artists, I'm like, look how easy that was for them. They almost did nothing. They just wore certain colors of clothes and then had this like mysterious relationship. They weren't compromising their values in any way. You know, I always feel like artists are like, but but people should just like love it because it's me and I wrote a song. And it's like, dude, everybody can write it like that. You're not that is not a special story. Sure. It's not anymore, at least. And to your point, the White Stripes have always been good about being disruptive. And I think that that is of the utmost importance, especially for developing artists, to be disruptive and find some kind of differentiating factor. Because obviously the music should be first and foremost, but it's not quite enough now. And as sad as that is, it's sort of the reality. But it sort of always has been the reality. And it's like, I remember I lived in London in 1991, and there were a zillion bands. Because in England, you know, England was like pre-internet, like the internet before the internet, right? Because it was like in England... 
there's only London. Like you can be from some other place, but it doesn't matter because sure. like everybody has to be in London or from London or, you know, if you're from somewhere else, you have to move to London. And I remember there was this band called Fabulous, which no one's ever heard of now, but they had I feel a like car. I, sh- I should have heard of them though. They had like, they dressed really crazy and they had this car that they'd spray painted the band name on and they drove through the f- plate glass window into the lobby of the enemy. And it was like, nobody could do anything but talk about this band. You know what I mean? They were just so everywhere. And it was because they did crazy antics and they had a wild persona, you know, and they were willing to kind of go that extra mile and be extra crazy. And I feel like in that landscape, they got it, that band got it, that they needed to stand out, that they needed to do something special to differentiate themselves from the herd. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody needs to drive cars through windows. Like, that's definitely not. (laughs) But, like, even making, I feel like sometimes it's a struggle to get a band to, like, put on a, like, a jacket that coordinates. You know what I mean? Or, like, anything. Just, like, you know, pick a fashion and do that. Like, I, I find myself telling bands that and having them be like, well, but then I'm not being authentic to myself. Right. It's always kind of a help me help you situation. Like just even the smallest bit of effort. Like I know you're a cool music dude or girl and it's like important to feel cool and authentic, but just even just a little bit of effort, you know, or like the other thing I I just actually have ran into this this week as far as interviews go one word answers or two word answers, you know, and and writers just pulling their teeth out. Like, can you elaborate just a tiny bit more just to give me, this isn't going to be a compelling story if I'm getting one word answer. So uh, I totally agree with you. Yeah. What I think is interesting about journalism is, or good journalism, is when they are able to put a band in their historical context, right? And to, to have an educated perspective on that. I worry a little bit from what you're saying and from what Zoe said, that we're getting into like the realm of, you know, clickbait right? Where, where really what you need to do is write something that's just going to catch people's eyes because all you want is for them to click and that that may end up being detrimental to the overall health of our ecosystem. I think so. Like we said before, it's definitely evolving. And I think the effect of quality music journalism has changed or the ripple effect it's no longer, you know, obviously, and I hate the word viral, but that does happen, which when it does, it's great, but it's rare. But journalism essentially serves, it, its role is sort of changed in, in the ecosystem. And music journalism is definitely valuable, but in a different way, the, at least from my experience with managers and labels and people who represent artists. You know, obviously, music journalism is great for SEO. It's great for marketing and branding for an artist. It's great to help submit for tours and festivals. And it's a great industry tool. But it isn't really, you know, like I mentioned before, what people tend to care a lot about is conversion. You know, converting sales, converting streams. It's kind of a numbers landscape and so that has definitely shifted and people are sort of I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it and people are kind of struggling with that evolution yeah well and that's funny because I feel like that's just the music business like that's always how it is you know when there's a new thing then everybody rushes to that and that's hot for a while and then it changes to something else and we just don't know what it's going to change to right now because, I mean, it used to be 10 years ago, it was you just all you wanted in life was, you know, 9.0 on Pitchfork because everyone was like, well, that's got a conversion rate for sales. I remember someone telling me that a great review on Pitchfork was a guaranteed 40,000 albums sold. 
I believe it, or at least ballpark. It was guaranteed sales and it, to some degree, for sure. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, but then that changed too. So, you know, I mean, these things just go in waves. It'll be interesting to see where it goes next. I do believe it will come full circle. I think there will come a time when music journalism, maybe it takes a different form, but it will sort of get back to that kind of real novelty that it was, you know, 10 years ago when that 9.0 on Pitchfork would would be so valuable and such a game changer. So perhaps it is cyclical. We will see. Yeah. Do you have any theories about where we're going or... I mean, streaming is king at the moment, so I think there are no signs that it's going elsewhere, at least for the immediate moment or the foreseeable future. And, you know, when I get inquiries for campaigns, projects, really, you know, because we, we offer third-party playlisting as well as our as press, and, and people are extremely interested in that. And I would say we do about 50-50 at this point, like press and playlisting and so that's extremely important to people. But you're right, it changes on a yearly basis what, what people value more. So I think right now it's Spotify is very in vogue. Getting on the right playlists is very in vogue. And I think that it's going to continue to be that way, at least for the next couple of years. You know what I think is interesting is that all the big companies like Spotify are investing in podcasting right now, mm -hmm. which to me seems like a little bit like they missed the boat because I feel like podcasting. I mean, I've had a podcast for five years and who am I? Right. <laughs> I'm just some random record label owner. But it's interesting also because right now there's there's not a lot of money in podcasting, at least not on the individual sort of independent level, maybe at the bigger levels where people are getting big sponsorships or big advertising budgets. That's different. But certainly on our level, it's like pretty small potatoes sure. in terms of money. So that's interesting that they're investing in podcasting so heavily. But then the other thing that's interesting to me is that that's like such a massive juxtaposition. I feel like we've been told for years that people have the attention spans of gnats, right? Like it has to let it's two seconds long and then they're on to the next thing or 30 seconds of a song, right? Like whenever that's what you get paid for is like 30 seconds if someone streams it for 30 seconds. Right. Like everyone's really excited about, yay, they made it 30 seconds into the song. Sure. But podcasting is like really a long form format. Like that's the funny part is like and there's people no, listen to them. Yeah, and I feel like the there's no real, like you can't necessarily casually listen to a podcast like you can casually listen to music. Exactly. There's no background right. podcasts. It's, right. You actually have to sort of invest some time into paying attention to what is being said. Exactly. So, and, and I think, honestly, just the word podcast is very in vogue right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously you've been doing this for five years. And actually a lot of people that I know that I've spoke to before I came in here today are fans of your podcast. So you, you definitely do have a, a following. <laughs> yay. But yeah, just the word podcast is very in vogue. And, and I think that a lot of press outlets who aren't getting the traffic on their journalistic pieces are adding podcasts to their platform and playlists and are sort of reaching to different outlets now to monetize or kind of stay afloat. So yeah. so maybe that's the future of music journalism is, you know, podcasts is that maybe that's where writers are going to go to do their writing and maybe even like, because I know that a lot of music podcasts are interview podcasts where they actually interview bands. Totally. But then there's cool ones like Song Exploder, you know, where you get artists to come on and completely dissect a song. I think that's that's one of my favorites for sure. And that's always a really good get for artists too. It's for sure. super in-depth as well. So I think you could be right. Yeah, perhaps that's it. So we just solved that 
I think so. Yep. Case closed. (laughs) Case closed. We're done here. Absolutely. Well, Nate Sirota, thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What? Thank you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Eamon Fogarty, Filthy Friends, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 